You're listening to Enclave Community Church. For more information about Enclave, please visit us online at enclavecc.com. Today's scripture, good morning, is from Acts 5, verse 26 through 32. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. Then God of our fathers raised Jesus, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Okay, we'll pray. Lord, thank you for today, for our congregation, this family that we um, get to share life, our life with. I just pray um, that we would open our hearts to what Andrew has today and um, that we would obey you and not man. Lord, please show us what that means. In Jesus' name, amen. So today, uh, we're going to be talking about being God's faithful witness in the face of opposing authorities. Um, I was thinking this past week about one of the challenging things of uh, the COVID years. You guys remember the COVID years? Um, well, one of the thing, uh, challenging things about the COVID years was how to respond to, how to pray through uh, the state-mandated church shutdowns. Uh, especially as a church leader, that was kind of like difficult to sort of wrap your, your mind around. And part of the reason why that was challenging, maybe it wasn't challenging for you, but it was challenging for me, was because there are these different calls on the Christian uh, that, feel, that felt like at the time that they were in tension that moment. So like, for example... We have a call on our lives to submit to governing authorities, right? Romans 13, 1 Peter chapter 2, Titus 3 talks about this. On the other hand, uh, God uh, asks us to not forsake meeting together. That's Hebrews 10, 24 through 25. So already there's a tension. Uh, then God calls Christians to love their neighbor, and not to put any kind of unnecessary roadblock in the way of the communication of the gospel. And there's some interesting passages about that. 1 Corinthians 10, uh, 29 to 33, I believe it is. It has some interesting things about deferring to the opinion of the public. Like, okay, that, you know, there are things that, to wrestle with there. Did the apostles know about meeting in these alternative ways? There's all these things. And then blanketing all of that is that the Bible also encourages Christian liberty with regard to disputable matters, Romans chapter 14. So if you remember, when we were going through the COVID years, we had a sermon series that addressed each of those different callings 
and the elders. I'm so thankful for the elders at this time. I'm always thankful for them. But during this time, our elders were like all over the map. <clears throat> Carlton could barely remember that, he, that there was COVID-19. Um, <laughs> and we had different people on the, <laughs> I just see him in the back coming in. That's why I'm teasing him. And, you know, we were just all over the map with regard to what we felt like. And then so we, you know, so we had these people who had very, very different opinions. And we kept asking God, oh, Shepherd King, just please just offer some guidance in this. And he sort of like guided us along the way. Now, uh, this sermon is not about defending what we did or didn't do during the COVID-19 uh, era. Um, because I have disputes about that in my mo own mind every day. So we'll just, uh, I'm, I'm recovering from that. Uh, but, but what I do want to kind of bring up is this idea that we are often faced with where there is authority that God has put in place, but then we also have to reckon with that there are limits to that authority, okay? So um, most of the time, Christians can obey God by obeying governing authorities that God puts in place. Even when those authorities are wicked themselves. So one interesting thing about the 1 Peter chapter 2 passage, right? When he says um, earlier on in verse 13, like submit to the governing authorities, submit to the emperor, submit to the governor. And then later in verse 17, he says, honor the emperor. What emperor are we talking about? Which emperor are we talking about there? Do you guys remember? Nero? Okay, so let's think about Nero for a second. Who was the emperor? Now this is falling. Okay, so who was the emperor who decided to impale Christians on stakes, light them on fire so that they can provide light for his garden? Nero, okay. Who was the emperor who decided to throw Christians into the arena so they can be ripped apart by wild animals and then crucify some of them. Which emperor was that? Okay, which emperor was the one that demanded that Peter be martyred? Nero. So Peter is saying, honor the emperor, the one who will martyr, you know, the one who will ask for my killing here in a little bit, right? So in other words, most of the time, Christians can obey God by obeying governing authorities a lot of the time, okay? However, however, when governing authorities ask Christians to go against, they ask them to do something contrary to God's call, then Christians are obligated to not obey governing authorities, and we have examples of this in the Bible. For example, in Exodus chapter 1, the Hebrew midwives do not kill the male Hebrew babies, right? even though Pharaoh wants them to, right? They disobey governing authorities. In Daniel chapter 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego do not worship right? Nebuchadnezzar's golden image. right? So they disobey the authorities of the land in that. A modern example in Nepal, it is illegal to evangelize and baptize other people. What do Nepalese Christians do? Evangelize and baptize people, right? It, they do not obey governing authorities when governing authorities ask them to do things 
that are contrary to what God's call on their life is. And so what we have in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 4 and in Acts chapter 5, is more of the same thing, more examples of this, right? The leaders are asking them to do things that are contrary to God's will, and so the apostles disobey. So, for example, in Acts chapter 4, Peter and John are arrested because, you know, you can get arrested for this apparently, you know, they healed a lame beggar at the entrance to the temple, and I think this is the real thing that bothered them, I, I think. Then they preached in Jesus' name to a crowd within the, the temple that he had been raised and was now exalted at the right hand of God the Father. So they arrested uh, the, Peter and John, brought them before the Sanhedrin, and the Sanhedrin said, do not preach in Jesus' name ever again. Right? And then what happens in Acts chapter 5? Now it's not just one person healed. Now a whole boatload of people are healed. Exorcisms are happening. And then all the apostles are preaching and performing signs and wonders in Jesus' name. So they're thrown into prison, right? Then an angel comes, releases them from prison, and says, hey, go preach in the temple again. And they do! <laughs> and so can you imagine, if you put your, you know, yourself in the place of the governing authorities at the time, you're trying to get these people to stop, right? They're just not stopping, right? It would be like if, if this couldn't, well... It didn't seem like it would happen anytime soon. But at Turlock, you know, let's say that the city council decides, you know what, you cannot talk about Jesus at the farmer's market. You can't talk about Jesus at the farmer's market. And then the enclave people go and they talk about Jesus. And they're like, bring him before the council. He can't, he told you, you can't talk. And then we do it again the next Saturday. We're at the farmer's market again. And then they throw us in a prison. And then an angel releases us. And there we are again at the farmer's market next time. You know, and just like, oh my goodness, what are we going to do with these people? And so this is where we are in our passage now, right? They, they are arrested for the third time and now brought before the Sanhedrin. And so there's kind of two parts to this passage that we're going to be looking at. First, there is the accusations that the high priest brings against the apostles. So there are the high priest accusations, and then there's the response of the apostles. So we'll look at each one of those. So let's first look at the accusations that are laid against the apostles by the high priest. So beginning back in verse 27, it says, And when they, so it's talking about the temple guard, the Jewish people had their own temple guards because they didn't want Roman soldiers in the temple to defile it. So the temple guard had brought them, that's the apostles, and set them before the council. So this is a translation of the word Sanhedrin. Right, which is the highest governing authority in Israel at the time, which consisted of the high priest, 70 other Jewish leaders, right, who sat in a semicircle in the chamber of Hewn Rock, right beside the temple, and with the apostles in the middle. Right? We have been here before. Peter and John were there in Acts chapter 4. Jesus was there in Luke 22. Then it goes on to say this, And the high priest questioned them, saying, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet, and, and uh, if you read it in the original, it says, and behold, <laughs> that's what they say, behold, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Okay, so 
The high priest's accusation consists of two things. He's accusing them of disobedience, that's one. But he's also accusing them of malintent. And so we're gonna, let's walk through that. So first he accuses them of disobedience. So if you remember, the first time that the high priest and, and the Jewish leaders arrested Peter and John, they told them this. They charged them, quote, not to speak or teach at all. In the name of Jesus. That's Acts chapter 4, verse 18. So what they did instead was held a prayer meeting in which the Spirit filled all the people there, right, to be bold witnesses for Jesus. Part of the people, you know, some of the people who were there at the prayer meeting were the apostles. And the apostles joined Peter and John, went to the temple again, spoke in Jesus' name, performed signs and wonders to the point that now the high priest is saying, you have filled, right? That's in the perfect tense, meaning past action with ongoing consequences. You have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. Okay, so let's just, I want to look at these two phrases. You have filled and then your, your teaching, okay? So you have filled. It's interesting to watch how Luke sort of stitches these scenes together with the idea of, of filling. So if you look in Acts chapter 4, right? Well, if you go even back to Acts chapter 2, the whole church is filled with the Spirit there, right? But if you go, you fast forward to Acts chapter 4, Peter is filled with the Spirit. Later they pray, the whole church is filled with the Spirit, you get down to Acts chapter 5, and then there's more filling that begins to happen. Then Satan fills Ananias and Sapphira to lie against the Holy Spirit. Right? So that's an effort, I think, by the enemy to stop the advancement of the kingdom of God. Then if you get to chapter 5, verse 17, the Jewish leaders are filled with jealousy. And then they try to arrest the advancement of the kingdom of God. It doesn't work. Ananias and Sapphira, Satan's plan with them does not work. And now this other plan where they're filled with jealousy, that doesn't work. To the point where now all of Jerusalem is filled. The people have encountered the healing power of Jesus through his spirit-filled church. And I think part of what Luke is trying to communicate is spirit Filling is greater than any other kind of filling. And it will result, it will result in others being filled. Now, this is God's main ministry strategy. So when we think about, or we ask ourselves the question, how can we have effective ministry in Turlock. The answer that, that God gives in the book of Acts over and over again is be spirit-filled. He doesn't suggest programs. He doesn't suggest events. He doesn't suggest concerts. And all of the, I'm not against any of those things, okay? That, that, that's not my point in this. What he, he says is be filled with me. And if you are filled with me, 
then others will be filled. And I think about Turlock. I was reading somewhere, and maybe this is just like a myth or something, but so you can correct me if I'm wrong. But I read somewhere that the word Turlock is from some Irish word, Turlo, which means dry lake. Right? Some of you are nodding your head. So you either believe the rumor or it's true. <laughs> dry lake. And, and, my, and I'm thinking, oh, man. God, come fill this dry lake, not with water, but with yourself. And what, I, what that would require is for us, not just us, but the churches to be filled with God. So I imagine, you know, we've talked about this image sort of before, where God is like this ever-flowing fountain of love and light and life, right? And it's just... It's just pouring down on all who will receive it. And, and I just imagine us like these, these buckets of just being filled with him, and we're kind of sloshing around, right? We slosh around at work. We slosh around in our homes. And other people, are their, their buckets of their heart may be empty, right? And as we bump into them, oh, pshoo, pshoo, you know, we're sloshing. And we never run out if we, if we remained open to being filled by the Spirit. We'll never run out. He is an everlasting fountain of light. And we bump in and it starts, and then other people being filled. That, that, that's the idea. That's the image I think Luke is wanting us to get around our head. So he, <clears throat> now this is, inter, you know, this is coming out of the mouth of the high priest. Right? They don't, see, that's the, another thing in the book of Acts is like, even when the enemy, even when the opposition, they keep, they're helping advance the kingdom of God, even as they try to stop it. And he's talking about like, yeah, you're filling all Jerusalem. And Luke's like, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. He's like stitching these scenes together. So that's one thing that's going on. And then he says, with your teaching, which is, it's kind of interesting because, and we all kind of do this to a degree because the high priest he understands his reality with reference to himself. Like, like he, he look, he understands reality in this very self-centered kind of way. Who is the high priest? Well, he's the teacher of Israel. And, and he wants to, so he understands the situation in terms of them teaching. But they're teaching something different than what I'm teaching. So it's your teaching. Now, I think, you know, Luke's writing down what, what he's saying. He's kind of smirking because it also invites the reader to make a comparison between the apostles' teaching and the high priest's teaching. Which one at this moment is more effective? The apostles' teaching is more effective with the people. I also think that they are probably different in kind, right? The, the high priest, his teaching consisted of religious content with regard to the law with an effort to kind of maybe self-aggrandize himself. Right? That, that's part of what I think his teaching was about. When you compare that to the apostles' teaching, right, it's, it's in some ways even hard to call the apostles' teaching the apostles' teaching. Although, I mean, Acts chapter 2 does, so I'm not faulting him for that, but it's more witness. They testify. So they're not teaching about religious content. They're testifying to a person, the person of Jesus, and that 
testifying is accompanied by demonstrations of power, right? So the high priest, <laughs> there's no demonstrations of power. You know, may, maybe he's, you know, good at talking or something like that, but no, no, no. Like, so the difference between their two teachings is very, very radical, right? And so we're invited to think about that. Also, and to take note of the high priest having sort of like a self-centered understanding or view of reality, what's going on around him. That's important to, to keep in mind, too. That's going to play into something later. And so the first accusation is disobedience. The, the high priest says, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. The second part of the accusation has to do with malintent, because the high priest goes on to say, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Now, in the Bible, there's this idea of, of blood guilt, okay? So that the blood of uh, someone who has been unlawfully murdered cries out against its killer and calls for justice. So that goes all the way back to what? Can you guys remember? Cain and Abel. Somebody said something else. They don't want to own up to it. Okay. All right. Um, <laughs> It goes all the way back to Cain, you know, Genesis chapter 4, verses 10 and following, right? Uh, Abel's blood cries out, right, against Cain. If you look a little bit later in, in the Torah, in, in the five books of Moses, right, there is a, a people who are called the avenger of blood. You guys remember that? And so what their job was, and this was regarded as just, and you have to take in the historical context and everything with regard to that. We won't go into that. But there's the avenger of blood, and what they do is they avenge the unlawful death of their relatives. Right? So now you have to have cities of refuge, you know, Numbers 35, Deuteronomy 19. But the idea is, in, in, in this context, is that the Jewish leaders are saying to the apostles, the motivation behind your witness is that you want revenge, which I think is a little bit of a projection uh, <laughs> on their part, right? That may be what is motivating them, but I'm not sure we can say that about the apostles, and, and we'll get to that here in a little bit. But the irony of all of it is that the Jewish leaders are actually the ones who have called blood guilt upon themselves. And I don't mean that by inference, I mean quite literally. Like, so if you look in Matthew chapter 27, verse 25, right? These exact same leaders are urging the crowd to cry out to Pilate, who's, who's trying to dissuade them from crucifying Jesus. He's just washed his hands because he doesn't want to be guilty of Jesus' blood. That's what he says. Right? And do you remember what the leaders urge the crowd to cry out? They say, may his blood be upon us and upon our children. Wow. And so now, uh, instead of repenting of that, they blame the apostles for putting their lives in danger. Now, there are a lot of ways to avoid repentance. There are a lot of ways to own up to what you have done wrong. 
But one of the ways in which we do this, one of the ways in which I've done this, right, is just, just start blaming other people for the mess that you've put yourself in, right? And, and, you know, maybe the Spirit of God is bringing something to your mind. And you're thinking, yeah, I am blaming somebody else for the mess that I put myself in. And this is what the Jewish leaders are doing. Right? They are accusing the apostles of disobedience. They're accusing the apostles of malintent and, and bringing uh, blood upon them. But they're the ones who've been disobedient. They're the ones who literally called with their own mouths for Jesus' blood to be upon them. So the high priest's accusation includes an accusation of dis uh, disobedience, malintention, but there's also something else going on. There are these two sort of glaring omissions. And um, I don't want to push this too far because this could be an argument from silence, you could say. But do you notice that the high priest has no questions about how they got released? Is that odd? Wouldn't you know, wouldn't you want to know, if you, if you locked somebody up, put guards in front of the jail cell, would you want to know maybe how they got out? Like, I, you know, we need to do, you know, upgrade our security system. You know, something needs to happen, right? Uh, but there's no reference to that at all. There's no reference to God. In fact, did you notice how the high priest avoids saying Jesus' name? He won't even say Jesus' name. So, but he's willing to make uh, an allusion to his teaching. He's willing to talk about, like, the danger that he's in. Right? And so you, you begin to get the sense, and I think what's going on with the high priest is that he's, he's so self-absorbed he has this self-centered view of reality, so much so that he can't, he just can't even see all the miraculous things that God is doing all around him in his midst. And I can relate to the high priest in this. I can get, I can get so self-absorbed in my own suffering or my own troubles or my own worries that I can, I can fail to see all the miraculous things that God is doing all around me. So that was the high priest's accusation. And you just think about how it was framed for him. And then now we're invited to think about how different that is from the apostles' response. So the, the high priest has a very self-centered understanding of reality, doesn't mention God at all. Now let's listen to the response of the apostles. Verse 29. But Peter and the apostle answered, the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God 
exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. So whereas the high priest has a very self-centered understanding or view of reality, the apostles have a very God-centered understanding of what is going on. And they're the ones who are suffering the most. It's very interesting. So they talk about God's call. They talk about God's work. They talk about God's goal. So in response to the high priest's accusation of disobedience, they basically say to the high priest, well, I mean, it's not so much about disobeying you. I mean, you could say that if we put you at the center of the universe. But it's not so much about disobeying you in as much as it is about obeying this higher calling that we have given to us by God through Jesus, namely this mission that has been given to us. And what was that mission? Well, generally speaking, Jesus said, you will be my spirit-filled witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the very ends of the earth. And then in addition to that, that general calling is given specific application the night prior, right? Because God sends a messenger, an angelos, an angel. He sends a messenger to the jail cell, not just to release them. This, this, you know, this has all kinds of implications for us. God will sometimes release you from whatever constraints are upon you. But the purpose of it is not just so like, oh, now, now I get to be free. Like, um, that's part of it. God sometimes keeps people in jail cells too, like he did that with Paul. And, and he does both for the same reason, right? To, in order to fulfill his mission in you. Because that's what's going to bring him glory and what's actually going to bring you the most joy. Right? And so he sends his angel who tells them, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. <clears throat> I think that that has a lot of significant parallels for all of us with reference to the Christian life. When we go to the Bible, we receive in the Bible what our general calling is. We learn from the Bible those things to be listening for, kind of like in this general kind of way. It doesn't tell you like about your aunt Martha or your uncle Tim or it doesn't give those kinds of specifics right it gives you this what to be listening for and then as you as you walk hand in hand you're you're in step with the spirit holding the hand of God the father he will let you know he could use an angel a vision a dream a prompting calling to remembrance something that he has spoken in his word and he will give you specific application at the time in that moment of your life 
as you are walking hand in hand with God. I think God works in that way. He goes from the general to the specific. He gives the general so that when we go like, oh, yeah, I feel a, I feel a prompting to, I don't know, steal this candy bar. And it's like, ah, well, you know, that's not really what God, that's not the kind of thing that God says. You know what I mean? So he gives us, okay, this is what we're listening for. And then we listen to God speaking to us at the very specific moments of our, of our life. So that, that's part of what's going on with the apostles. So in light of this command, this mission that they've been given by Jesus, right, they can't obey the high priest. <laughs> yeah, it's like, like, so far, I mean, like, they haven't been told a lot of things, right? But they've been told this one thing, right? Witness to me. And, they're, and high priests are saying, don't witness to Jesus. So, you know, like, we have to follow Jesus, right? And that following of Jesus, the command that's been given, is to witness regarding what God has done in Jesus Christ, so what has he done? So we've talked about God's call. Let's talk about God's work. So did you notice in the response that Peter and the apostles give, right, they mention three things in a very short period of time, three things that God is doing, right? It says in verse 30, the God of our fathers raised Jesus. God, the God that you say you serve, our fathers, our ancestors, right, the God of our fathers Reversed your sentence of death on Jesus. Verse 31, and God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior. God took Jesus, not just raised him from the dead, but exalted him to his right hand, giving him the highest place of authority in the universe. Above you, high priest. <clears throat> he is the highest of priests now. And God is, Jesus is using that authority, right, not to protect himself from dangers, that, that, that's how high, the high priest sees his authority, but to save people from sin, death, and the devil. And then in verse 32, God has given the Holy Spirit. Right, so not, not only is Jesus now giving these commands, Jesus is also giving the power in his very person, giving of his spirit, the power to obey those commands and to, and to be a witness for Jesus regarding these realities of what God has done. So unlike the high priest, who has a very self-centered understanding of his uh, mission, of his calling on his life, and these types of things, the apostles have a very God-centered understanding of, of uh, their view of, of reality. Right? And so we've talked about God's call, God's work. What about God's goal? In response to the high priest's accusation of malintent, right? What did, they, what did they say? Did they diminish the guilt of the Jewish leader? Did they say like, oh yeah, I know, yeah, you're right. We, we kind of stepped out of bounds there. No, they don't, they don't diminish the high priest's guilt, but then they add something to it. They offer an invitation, right? They basically say, yes, you are guilty of Jesus's blood, right? You killed him by hanging on a tree, right? You should hear the echoes of Deuteronomy 21, 23 there, which Paul takes in Galatians 3, 13, right? You curse it as everyone that hangs on a tree is what that says. Paul takes that in Galatians 3, 13 to say like, yeah, Jesus became a curse for us. And he's talking about, 
you know, penal substitutionary atonement. But, but Peter's not going into all of that right now. What he's saying is, yeah, you are guilty of Jesus' death, but God reversed the sentence and exalted him. But the reason why, the motive why, is not... The reason why God did it and the reason why the apostles are witnessing to it is not to condemn the high priest, although that might be a consequence of him not responding. But the reason given is, in verse 31, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. So the intent is not to harm. The intent is to offer repentance and forgiveness. And it's so easy to mishear the gospel, isn't it? Or you, you tell somebody like, man, I am such a sinner that God had to send his own son to die on my behalf to pay for my sins. And then the person responds, how dare you judge me like that? And you're like, okay, you know? And I, I was no different when I didn't have the spirit, right? Like I'm not, that's not judging them. It's just like, there's a way in which the enemy twists even the message of the gospel to mean something other than what it actually is, this offer. This offer to turn and receive forgiveness. Now, I think it's important for us to remember in all of this that our calling is not fundamentally different from that of the apostles. We're not apostles. Most of us are not going to be called to speak to a crowd in a temple somewhere. But nevertheless, if you know Jesus, you have a testimony. God in Jesus did something for you in your life, and your life was changed. And you can testify. So I'm not saying things like, and you will answer every objection given by the atheist. And you will, you know, I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about you can testify to the reality of what God has done for you in Jesus. And right now, if you're hearing, oh, man, yeah, I really ought to, I should do that. Like, you're, if you're hearing religious duty right now, then, then I, I want to invite you to let go of that because what I'm talking about is be filled. Be filled to the point of overflowing. And then you'll, you will, somebody will be like, man, it was amazing how you witnessed to that person. And you're like, what are you talking about? You know, you won't even notice half the time that you are fulfilling this call on your life. I was reminded this last week of Deepak, and I always get his name wrong, but it's, I think it's Adhikari. Anyway, Brad Watt. Uh, mentioned him when he was here. And so Deepak is one of the Nepalese people who is doing illegal things in Nepal. He is evangelizing and baptizing people who respond to the gospel. Now, here's the thing about Deepak. Deepak is, I don't know a lot about him, but I know, I know this one thing. He is not an apostle. He is a manager of a computer store. 
okay? And God is using him, filling him up to evangelize the Japan people in Nepal and baptizing. And did we have that picture? Okay, so he's the one on the right. I don't know if you can see his smiley as clearly as I could when I'm looking at it on my computer screen. But does he, does he look like he's thinking, if we put a thought bubble above his head, would it read something like, well, this is my religious duty? No. He's like, this is amazing. This, the kingdom of God that came into me and changed me, has now changed another. And now I get to be the one who baptizes her. And, and we're, may God raise up in this room, Deepak's, for Turlock, this dry lake. It's not even a, illegal. Maybe that would make it more exciting. Maybe we should pray that it should be illegal and then maybe we'd be more willing to do it. But, uh, but man, may God, we have this call. We have this call. And it's not going to be guilt that propels the kingdom forward. But we have this call. Can we ask God, God, give us ears to hear when you want to specify that calling in a unique application as I walk step by step with you this week oh, I think man I think exciting things would happen things that, do you think that he was sure that she was going to say yes to Jesus or do you think that there was a possibility that she could report him to the authorities and he could be arrested again he doesn't know and so he, he just, he thinks he has a prompting, he has this general call, and he just, he, he has a holy experiment. Let's just see, I, I trust God, let's just see what happens. And if you, if you live like that, life can become very exciting. And I think, I even think danger is a little part of that. You know, you, you take a risk in faith, and life can become very exciting. This is not just a call for the apostles. It's a call on all of us, grounded in what God has done in Jesus, empowered by the Holy Spirit. We're not just doing this on our own. We're filled with Him, led by Him, so we can extend the call of repentance and forgiveness to those around us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for... Um, filling the apostles in the way that you did. That moved them past fear. Not in a way that they relied on themselves, but in a way where they relied on you completely. Father, we acknowledge right now that we there's not many moments in our lives that feel like this. 
God, can you change that? Can you fill us with your spirit? Help us to press into you. Even now, as we sing, God, fill us with your spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Fill this place, fill our hearts to the point of overflowing, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.